All right, Ben, Mike, uh, let's talk about softball. Minnesota Vikings were out at Adam Thielen's charity softball game. We will talk about a lot more from Vikings OTAs as they had another, the final open one this week, and they wrap up shop on those before next week's mandatory minicamp. Um, but let's talk about some observations. Ben, you were at Adam Thielen's charity softball game and included, as you had mentioned before the podcast, an interesting window into Kirk Cousins and Kevin O'Connell's relationship. It also included a surprise star and softball yes. slugger who people might not even know the name of, Andrew DePaola. Is that how you pronounce it? Andrew DePaola, yeah. De pa- wow, see, I don't even know. A long snapper. Uh, <laughs> That's a position that in uh, in Vikings lore, I mean, you don't always know the long staffer's name, but it has a tendency to pop up at the worst possible times. So uh, probably a credit to him that you don't know his name at this point. But if you, he, if you don't know if you don't know his name, uh, you'll probably be able to learn a new one soon enough because well, they change their long snappers a lot. They have. Yes, they have done that, including what, how many years ago was it that they uh, drafted Austin Cutting and had a long snapper competition? I love when yeah. they have long snapper competitions. Got to get the operation right. Yep. Two or, two or three, was, two or three years ago. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He was like the 12th pick of the draft that year. And it's like, okay, Rick, you're drafting long snappers. It's, it's time to be done. Anyway, uh, Andrew DePala played baseball as a middle infielder in high school in Maryland um, before he started focusing completely on football heading into college. I knew none of this. Before Tuesday night, when Adam Thielen held his annual charity softball game at CHS Field to benefit his foundation, it was originally supposed to be the offense versus the defense. Greg Joseph uh, had passive-aggressively tweeted a couple weeks ago, if only special teamers were allowed to play. Thielen apparently <laughs> went to the special teamers and said, hey, if you guys want to come, that's, that's great. Um, and apparently there were a couple of players on the defense that couldn't play, so the defense got the special teamers. Greg Joseph led off the game with a single. They got a couple other guys on base. And then up walks Andrew DePaula, who promptly, and they have like the, the short fence, you know, they do for the charity, celebrity softball kinds of things. So middle of the outfield was a home run. You didn't have to hit it out of the park. The only player that did was Andrew DePaula. The first swing he took, he bangs one off the left field foul pole at CHS Field. First of four home runs. His third of the night was on to the berm and – probably two thirds of the way up the berm in left center field at CHS. It was, it was, a, you know, it's a, it's softball, it's aluminum bats, but it was a legitimate long home run. I mean, it, it was, it was quite impressive. And then he hit one. Uh, the last time he came up, they were down two. He was the tying run. Dalvin cook rolled the first two pitches toward him saying, I'm not pitching to you. Um, <laughs> but then he decided to do it and he came off the field and I said, what you pitch to He said, they were going to boo me. I, I had to do it. So of course, DePaulo made him pay tying the game home run derby King KJ Osborne, who I think won the home run derby in a tiebreaker with Thielen because Thielen said he got tired and said, Hey, make KJ the winner. That's fine. Um, Osborne came through as the hero with a three-run shot to win it for the offense, 17-14. to 14. But the thing we learned is that Andrew DePala, if you need somebody for your beer league team, give him a call because, man, oh, man. <laughs> he, uh, he threw batting practice for the home run derby early in the game and then uh, pitched quite a bit as well. You don't want him pitching because he gave back all the runs that he created, but uh, put him in the middle of your lineup get in one of those leagues where you don't have a limit on home runs because 
he'll uh, he'll get it done for you if you don't have that. What, not just beer league. I mean, the tw- this is a day later. The Twins get shut out with two yeah. hits. Maybe he could maybe he could help out the local uh, squad. The local nine. I don't know <laughs> if he. Can- is he vaccinated? That's all I want to know because they're sending the they're sending the squad to Toronto and they got at least four guys out for uh, for that. Oh man, oh man, I I, I think he is. I, I'm trying to remember. I, I don't think he was in any of the unvaxxed protocols last year, so I'm, I'm fairly certain he's vaxxed. So okay. I don't know if he can hit major league pitching. Uh, he could certainly hit softball pitching. Yeah, I suppose Dalvin Cook is not major league pitching. Huh? No, in fact, the ball got on the mic a couple of times. I, I think. Uh, he was during a mid game interview. He's like, yeah, I just want to compliment the pitching. And he goes down that was, that was for you, buddy. So it was uh, quite a bit of uh, roasting going on. It was, it was fun. It was a, uh, it was a, a fun outing. I mean, you, you saw certain guys that looked like they had some skill. Brian O'Neill plays a really good first base. This probably should not be a huge shock because he's pretty technically sound on the offensive line and it's pretty nimble. Actually, Ran out a couple of grounders pretty impressively, too. So you're sitting there saying nobody get hurt. But uh, scooped a couple throws from shortstop Eric Kendricks, who also was a standout. Kendricks looked like he probably played the position. Played a good shortstop. Uh, Garrett Bradbury hit a couple shots. Uh, a lot of the offensive linemen were pretty good. Defensive linemen, not so much. So Daniel Hunter swinging a bat. He needs a little work. But, uh, yeah, a, a fun time was had by all, I would say. Yeah, Kirk, Kirk Cousins gave a rundown on his Instagram, but he he it was all almost all positive, talking about uh, DePaula with the four home runs, um, O'Neill playing first base, Kendricks and Justin Jefferson being good athletes, KJ Osborne. But then he got to Dalvin Cook and said his base running awareness as a pinch runner has room for improvement. I don't know what that meant, but uh, I I think he got doubled off at okay. one point. There, there there were a lot of situational things that needed some work. Let's put it that way. They also had like five or six outfielders out there at any one time. It was not regulation, but you had a number of times where people would crash into each other. It's like somebody call somebody off. And, and Kendricks clearly had played enough because when he's playing short, uh, there's a pop-up he's, he's calling everybody off saying, Hey, I got it. So he, he understood what to do. And I mean, seemed like he had had played enough, but uh, yeah, there were, there were some, uh, some situational awareness uh, need for improvement, I would say. <laughs> well, what does this mean? And what did you see from, from cousins and Kevin O'Connell? Um, I know you and Mike talked about this on daily delivery a little bit, but I did not get to hear that. What, what was your impression from watching those two guys out there just in this kind of laid back setting? Yeah, it was one of the more interesting things of the night. Cause yeah, like you said, it, it was pretty relaxed and, and, access for us was was also pretty relaxed we were able to be down on the field and and kind of just chit-chatting with players which is not something we've been able to do a whole lot in the last couple of years with uh with COVID so it was it was nice to be able to kind of just whether it being a fly on the wall or just chit-chatting with guys you got a little bit more of a sense of how they're operating than you typically would it so Kevin O'Connell threw out the first pitch and uh threw it underhanded I guess it's softball but I mean you know didn't he do it at the Twins game a couple weeks ago I don't he, remember that. Probably he, he he did throw out the pitch. I didn't see whether or not it was over or underhanded. I mean, come on, Kevin, you can't throw it underhand. He was a, he was an NFL he was quarterback. quarterback. I think he's, a quarterback. He was, he's got the arm. He's got the arm. Yeah, there's no question. So he threw the softball pitch underhanded, which I thought was like okay, fine, whatever. But so then he hung. He stayed around for a while, um, kind of just sitting over on the along the rail on the offensive dugout. And he and Cousins were kind of chit chatting at first. It seemed like you know just kind of good-natured softball banter at first, but then the, the conversation goes on for 15 or 20 minutes. And I'm looking over and 
and O'Connell looks like he's uh, motioning through blocking schemes and that sort of thing. And it's like this, this seemed like, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about these things for things we can do with our offense. What do you think? What do you like? Uh, I obviously couldn't hear the conversation and, and probably wouldn't divulge all of it if I could, because it, you know, it was kind of a fly on the wall, but just to watch them talking and having a, a back and forth for probably 15 or 20 minutes, it, it was striking to see it because we would not have seen that last year. We just would not have seen Mike Zimmer, Kirk Cousins in that type of a setting. In fact, you know, Zimmer revealed it right before the season. And then we talked about it a number of times through the season that they started watching film together once a week for the first time last year in four years of Cousins being the starter. And Cousins went to Zimmer with the idea. So that relationship was not in a good spot. Um, it certainly wasn't at the end. And I don't think it really is now. But Cousins and O'Connell, it's quite a bit different. And this is this is the thesis the Vikings, I think, are kind of building their season on, is that we can get more out of our current roster with a different coaching staff and with a different approach to our players than we've had in the past. Now, that may be the temporary solution because it's cheaper to do that than it is to blow the whole thing up, and maybe we'll get there eventually. But especially with Cousins, I think that approach is – what they're banking their season on. And I do think cousins is, um, how do I want to say this? I, I think relational dynamics are important enough to him and have enough of an effect on how he'll play that if he has a coach that he feels like is in his corner, it can't hurt to try it. I, I think there's enough reason to believe that that can affect how he goes about his job that, if you're not quite ready to blow it up, you might as well have somebody that has a decent relationship with him and a productive one before you say, let's start this whole thing over. I, I don't know if he's going to be any different. I mean, he's, you know, 10 years in the league, it's a little hard to sit here and think that this guy is going to turn into Patrick Mahomes or something. I'm not saying that, but if you can get incrementally better performance from him and get him to a point where maybe you're winning a couple of playoff games, then you know, uh, maybe you hang on to him. And I, I, I can see the eye rolls from Vikings fans right now. Well, maybe just this one more time. Maybe we'll try it. Maybe this will work. But I'm not saying it's going to. I'm saying this, I think, is what they are banking their season on, or at least banking their time with Kirk Cousins on, that Kevin O'Connell can get more out of him. And that, that conversation just was a little bit of a, a snapshot, I thought. It was very interesting to see that in terms of how their relationship is right now. I do think, too, it makes me think of something Kirk had said when he last spoke to the media a couple of weeks ago. And Kirk dodged all the questions about, um, you know, what's it like this time around? Not Basically, the elephant in the room of not having Zimmer there, yeah. you know, breathing down your neck kind of thing. And Kirk only mentioned that I think the question was phrased of like something about less tension uh, this offseason. And Kirk had mentioned something about how. I've always felt the pressure internally myself that needs to come from within. And then he ends it by saying, I don't think that's ever needed to come from a coach. And, and I, that sticks out certainly from when we're talking about O'Connell now, they haven't even rolled the ball out, played a game yet or lost a game yet. But um, I I do think that that gets lost in a lot of the analysis of things. These, these guys are human. And as you said, Kirk relationship dynamics, being comfortable, those things can go a long way to not just necessarily racking up more touchdowns and yardage and the overall volume stats, but with the pillar that Kevin O'Connell keeps preaching of his coaching of 
be at your best when your best is required. And that's always been the thing that with Kirk, people have fairly criticized him for and saying like, well, when the moment comes down to it, they need a play and they need you to do something. It hasn't always been there with Kirk. And you do wonder if a change in just the day-to-day and the change in how the organization and being in the building is and all these things and how comfortable you are with your coaching staff could potentially uh, change the way you perform in those moments. Why is Kirk great till he's got to be great? Right. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> no, two, two, two O'Connell uh, observations too, really quick. One uh, dad game, very strong. Looking at the picture that kind of probably describes the scene Ben was setting. It's on again, cousins, Instagram page of the two of them talking Kevin O'Connell, big white tennis shoes on. I believe he has three kids, right? I think he's got yeah. a wife and three kids. So not, not surprising, but big white tennis shoes. So good, good for Kevin O'Connell to reinforce his dad game. And, and two, if we look at Matthew Stafford last year in, you know, in with, with the Rams, it was, what's interesting to me is that I think Stafford, you know, in Detroit early in his career kind of had a reputation of, you know, playing a little loose with the football. He was, you know, had a bunch of years with 16, 17, 19 interceptions. And he kind of dialed that back and became a little bit of a safer player a, a little bit as the career went on. But last year, 17 interceptions, but 41 touchdowns with the Rams. They kind of let him loose again um, had a second best passer rating so just I don't know if that's a window into how cousins might play uh, they're two different quarterbacks obviously we've talked about that enough but sure seems like they gave Matthew Stafford a, le- a level of autonomy in that offense that maybe he hadn't experienced with Detroit or didn't feel like he could experience with Detroit because those teams were just not great yeah and that dovetails into kind of something we saw at OTAs yesterday in Egan and we've spoken, I think on the last podcast, we talked about how uh, Kirk will have more kind of freedom and control in this offense as they call multiple plays in the huddle, as they let him kind of diagnose things and pick out the best route for them to go, sometimes at the line of scrimmage. Um, but then we heard from Kevin O'Connell yesterday, spe- specifically, excuse me, about a play in which Adam Thielen came down with a one-handed catch in the corner of the end zone with Harrison Smith draped on him. And how that kind of represented a little bit of the freedom and the player ownership yeah. that they're giving these guys. Um, I can read to the quote that he had about that. Um, as O'Connell was asked about that play, um, he goes on talking about Thielen's, you know, knack in the red zone and all those things. Um, he said it's kind of just an example of Kirk kind of feeling. Thielen's body language in that route. Do we coach it to throw in that area? Absolutely not. He's just throwing Adam open with some trust. And he said, I think that's a big word, the trust in the red zone to kind of play through the eyes of the quarterback and be available and all those things. Then he goes on to mention that this is an example of the kind of player ownership that I've been talking with you guys about and saying that that is not where they coach him to throw that ball. That's just something Kirk saw and decided to take advantage of. Um, That does seem to be a little less rigid, maybe perhaps than some of the half feel reads and kind of ways that they were orchestrating this offense in the past. Yeah. And I think especially with those two, I mean, Adam Thielen's red zone numbers, the last couple of years, I, I wrote about this and talked with Thielen a, a little bit about it last year, but he, I think is like second in the NFL, at least was at the time uh, to Devonte Adams in red zone touchdowns the last two or three years. And that is with him having missed a, few games in certainly in 2019 missed a number of them and then I think missed a couple of, of games last year as well so he has missed enough time that for him to be matching Devonte Adams in that stat is is pretty impressive and we've seen it 
over and over and over with cousins in the red zone. And I, Mike and I talked about this a little bit yesterday on daily delivery as well, but um, when cousins trusts a receiver, it tends to go a long way because we do see him kind of lean on two or three guys and not always spread the ball around in tight spots. And, and Thielen certainly is the guy he looks for, I think in the red zone, especially. And if they have that chemistry, if Thielen has figured out how to get open in the red zone. He, he claims there's no difference to it, but I think O'Connell certainly feels like there's an art to it. Um, and if he has cousins trust, I think it makes sense to say you guys can have a little bit of latitude here. And it's interesting as we have this discussion, I think cousins talked with Mark Craig a little bit last year and cousins said something about coaches sometimes can basically have you so systematized that you're constantly sitting there thinking about, well, this rod has to be here and this has to be here. And all of these kind of precise, almost mechanical details when you're on the field, rather than saying, Hey, just go play. So there's probably a little bit more freedom for him to say, I can go play and not worry about if, if I throw it in a spot that I'm not coached to throw it and we score, I don't think I'm going to probably get the, yeah, but you weren't supposed to do that lecture maybe quite as much as I would have in the past. And, you know, I don't know that for sure. But um, and I think there's probably a fine line to some of this. I asked O'Connell about it. He said there's certain situations where we're going to say this has to be done exactly the way we drew it up because we don't have any margin for error here. But I think it is certainly on brand for O'Connell and probably smart to say if you've got guys that ultimately have to execute this stuff on the field, give them the latitude to do it the way that they're comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. more. Oh, sorry. I just want to read this quick from O'Connell Please do, um, yeah. with what Ben was saying, because um, he had mentioned that this is a time in OTAs in the spring where players are trying things out, both offensively and defensively. So it's the same, but in an opposite way for these quarterbacks and receivers, they're trying things out. We're teaching a system, but then they've got to take it. And that's the player ownership. You guys have heard me talk about from my very first day when we can take something and then apply it with their experience together, apply their ability to activate different ways of winning within the scheme, both at quarterback and the other 10 guys on the field. Um, so yeah, exactly what Ben was just talking about in terms of there are going to be times where it's, you know, two minutes to go and we don't have time. You need to do it this way, but on the broader scheme of things or broader spectrum of things, they're trying to give a little bit more leeway for players to say, Hey, I prefer doing something this way, or, you know, we see something on the field that it might work better this way. Even I think he, he said something about what they call things and this, you know, we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but it's a kind of an interesting window into the culture of how they're doing things, the, what they're naming concepts or what they're naming um, code words on the field, different plays, you know, all, all these different things. Players are coming up with some of the language for it because O'Connell basically says, Hey, if this is meaningful to you and it helps you remember it, fine with me, I'll learn it. So uh, I mean, even those little things, I think there's a little bit more of a, to use the other buzzword, collaborative approach than there perhaps was in the past. Yeah, and I was just going to piggyback on some of the Thielen stuff because I got interested in looking at the numbers. And you're right, uh, he's just, he's become this red zone threat that he really wasn't early in his career. He's got, last uh, the last two years, he's got 24 touchdown catches total. And that's as many as he had in the previous four years yeah. before that combined. And 22 of them are red zone touchdowns. He used to be more of kind of the, if he scored before, a lot of them were a little bit longer sometimes, right? He was kind of the 
necessarily the vertical threat, but he, he was he had you know he was a vertical threat, and that was kind of where he was getting a lot more of his uh, a lot more of his touchdowns than and you know it just wasn't really a touchdown grabber early in his career, and he's definitely evolved into that. So that's interesting to see how that's become part of his game. He's a fascinating player in a lot of ways. I and mean, we all know the story and I'm, I'm not saying it from that perspective as much of the, Hey, did you know this guy went to Mankato state and almost sold dental? We've all said that, but yeah, even what he's done since 2016, when he kind of first broke out and, you know, it, it took him a couple of years to do it and subsisted on special teams. But you think about, he went from Sam Bradford to Case Keenum and kind of became the deep threat guy like we're talking about for Case Keenum, more so than Stefan Diggs was at that point. Um, and he, he made a lot of catches that year where it's tracking the ball over one shoulder and fighting a guy off. I can remember a couple early in that season. Thing, you know, when Keenum would throw those jump balls, Thielen more often than not was a guy on the receiving end. And he's turned into a red zone target, a really effective one with Kirk Cousins. And I, I think still can make plays in other parts of the field, but probably not quite the getaway speed that he had in the past. I think he was probably underrated there in the past, but um, he's found a way to make himself really effective for a long time. I mean, he's heading into basically his, his ninth NFL season on a roster, his 10th on the team and to go from special teams to kind of fighting his way into a starting role, probably at like age 26. And then, making a six, seven year, maybe longer than that career for himself as a productive receiver. Um, it, it continues to be a, an impressive evolution for it's just been, it's fascinating for us to watch because Andrew, you and I have basically covered it since day one and, and he continues to, to kind of find new ways to, to make himself valuable. I think this was with Sam Bradford, but I remember my, my, the, when I think of, Adam Thielen and, and the more remarkable plays that he's made in his NFL career. The one that always sticks out to me is the around the saints defenders helmet catch where a ball was thrown and there's a zero percentage. Like if he didn't jump over the defender and grab it from behind the defender, it would have hit the defender in the back or helmet and would have just fallen to the ground, but he makes that catch. And that's the kind of thing where we probably should have seen even back then, like this guy has such remarkable knack and talent and, just innate ability to find the ball and adjust and all these things that of course it's going to work well in the red zone, right? You know, having, having that finite space to work with. Um, Yeah. It doesn't matter. I think as he ages, we've, we're seeing it now, just that kind of transformation in his game. Um, Well, maybe that's why Adam Thielen, the elder statesman of the wide receiver room, the Vikings bring in, somebody who's known a little bit more for his speed as they deal with injuries to KJ Osborne and Amir Smith-Marset in camp. Kevin O'Connell insists that Osborne and Smith-Marset will be ready by training camp, maybe even next week for mandatory minicamp for Osborne. But they bring in Albert Wilson, the five foot nine slot target, former Dolphins and Chiefs receiver, uh, Vikings historians, not even historians, just super fans might remember his first touchdown in the NFL came on a 40-some yard screen pass um, against the Vikings in 2015 when the Vikings went, I believe, to Kansas City for a game there when Alex Smith was still quarterback. Um, this guy is somebody who's been able to break open games at times with his speed, but he's fairly limited in that sense, and that's what he is. So, Ben, is there anything more to this signing, you think, than just, hey, let's get another body and uh, for camp, or is this somebody you think that could actually help them long term? Sorry, you were breaking my brain for a second. That that game, I think, was a TCF. 
I was oh, trying was to it? go back through the 15 schedule. Okay. The, the 15 schedule to piggyback on the, the stadium conversation we had last week was the holy grail of beat writer travel, which I don't think will ever have happen again. We went to San Francisco, Oakland, uh, Denver in October, and Arizona in December. We got both the NFC and AFC West that year, and it was glorious. So I was like, I don't think we went to Kansas. Yeah, because that yeah that game I think was maybe the first one after the bye at TCF. Yes, uh, it was. I'm just looking it up right now. It was the first game after the bye. Vikings won 16-10, so that was Kansas City's only touchdown. Cut it to 13-10, but Blair Walsh uh, three field goals in that game. Well, those were the days. Yeah, that was that was kind of the heyday of Blair Walsh. It was like that October, I think he and then he hit one to beat the Bears and then hit the one in that Rams game that I've always been fascinated with where they took the wind and he makes it in overtime. And then at the one he missed at the end of the season, he was very gracious about it, said, I want you guys to talk to me after I hit the game winners. You got to be here after I miss the one to lose the game. So that 2015 Blair Walsh was uh, very gracious with missed kicks. Um, anyway, yes, Wilson, I think, I mean, O'Connell's talking about it as a depth signing, but it, it's hard not to view it in the context of the injuries to Smith-Marset and to Osborne and wonder how bad are these things going to be? I mean, we're not going to get a great sense of that at this point, and teams are are cautious with players that are injured. I mean, Zedaria Smith was the same thing yesterday. Didn't see him out there. O'Connell said it was precautionary. We'll have to see how that shakes out as well. But teams are going to lean on the cautious side with key players this time of year. So it could be nothing. Could just be, let's add a guy with some speed. Let's add a guy with some that can provide some depth. But um, it also came on the same day they had D.D. Westbrook in for a workout. So it tells you that this wasn't just a, hey, we like this guy. Let's go get him. This is a, we are looking at receivers because we feel like we need some. So that's worth keeping in mind as, as all of our listeners uh, put on their beat writer brains. One of those things that's just worth filing away. You have to keep checking on these things and, and see what's going to happen. But they need receiver depth. I, they are going to use three receiver sets a lot more this year. We're going to probably see 11 personnel be their base set. So they need at least three and maybe more than that, given the fact that it's a 17-game season and you're going to need other guys to contribute. So um, it's there's enough uncertainty there that it, it's worth viewing this signing somewhat in that context, I think. They might also have the personnel kind of flexibility if they don't think they have three receivers to maybe not lean on it as much. Um, yeah, that's true. That's if we if we buy all the love that they're bestowing onto CJ Ham. Uh, There's been a lot of love for CJ Ham, <laughs> um, and all the uh, surprises Kevin O'Connell might be able to throw people's way with how they use CJ Ham. <laughs> um, I do think though, a wide receiver. I do, I do think a wide receiver. It's interesting to see them talk about that competition at wide receiver three. Whereas it certainly doesn't seem like it's just KJ Osborne's job. It seems like they're pretty open to know we're gonna figure out how we can use guys in different ways. And maybe they have a package where if it is Albert Wilson, that they're using him on these screen plays or stretch the field kind of elements to his game, because with a guy like Adam Thielen, as you mentioned, maybe not the deep threat that he used to be. If Amir Smith-Marset's not healthy enough and can't get on the field enough to show coaches that he knows the playbook and all those things, um, he's got the speed for it, but maybe they don't aren't able to use him in that way. So they seem to be open to kind of mixing in different personnel. And, and I think, O'Connell did say yesterday that when we do go three wide, we are going to have competition 
there to see how many different skill sets and guys we can get on the field and, and use them in more diverse ways. So it's not necessarily going to be like it was last year where Irv Smith gets hurt. The Vikings decide we got to go three wide more. And then it was just always KJ Osborne. Yeah. It does seem like they're going to mix that up quite a bit in terms of who they put on the field potentially anyway. Um, yeah, this has not been a very um, egalitarian approach to personnel in the past. I guess it, this has not been a team under Mike Zimmer that used a lot of different packages or used a lot of different guys in sub package type roles. I mean, you, you could kind of know it's going to be base or nickel on defense. And if it's nickel, it's going to be one guy. I mean, you, you could basically, I do a fair amount of trying to chart personnel groups during games, at least to the extent that you can when you're watching it live, but it was very easy defensively because it's basically all I have to do is, okay, is McKenzie Alexander on the field? Yep. They're in nickel. There wasn't a lot of other variation there. So I think that'll certainly be different on defense. We may see some dime packages that we, I think are going to see different looks in terms of how they, they assemble their base front. And we're probably going to see that on offense too, where it's just a little bit more diversity in how they line up and how they use certain guys. And uh, yeah, it'll, it's going to be fascinating to watch that play out because it's going to be quite a difference, I think, in that facet of things as well. So I saw a lot of just watching the defense yesterday too, a lot of nickel and dime packages where they're using Josh Metellus, who I don't think will sniff the field if everybody's healthy. But once Lewis Seen gets put in with the first team defense, you would imagine Cam Bynum is still probably going to have maybe a yep. pretty sizable role, um, especially if they drop somebody like Harrison Smith or even Seen uh, near the line of scrimmage there. So we'll have to see how that all plays out as well. Um, yeah, all that safety rotation is a big part of this Brandon Staley, Vic Fangio type defense they want to play. I mean, it, you you can read a lot of – there have been some good – film study type things on this defense the last couple of years vis-a-vis -vis Brandon Staley more so than obviously the way the Vikings are going to run it, but kind of lining up safeties to look like one thing and moving them around to the last second, you know, more so than just having Harrison Smith sprint back and forth. I think there's going to be different safety rotations as well that you're going to see, you know, trying to make it harder for the quarterback to figure out what the coverage is and where can I go with the ball and buy an extra half second there. So I, I think some of these, different packages and putting safeties in different spots is going to be a big part of this thing. Well, and Bynum was a corner in college, right? So it's not yes. like he can't cover or can't be versatile enough to do that. So that does make a lot of sense. All right. Let's talk about yelling at kickers. No. Oh, speaking of Mike Zimmer. <laughs> you beat me this, to it. Sorry. <laughs> this certainly seemed like something that would have happened at a Mike Zimmer OTA. We saw because the Vikings have a kicking competition between Greg Joseph, the incumbent, and an undrafted rookie in Gabe Burkich, excuse me. And they are trading off field goals at the OTAs, certainly, that we've been to. Uh, you would presume that's going on even if the ones were not. So to ratchet up the pressure in, I guess it would have been June 1st yesterday, in June, um, they decided to, once they got back to about 50-yard range-ish on their longer kicks, they decided to rally the entire team around these kickers and have the offensive defensive guys uh, start, whoops, start basically yelling and shouting at these guys. I got distracted even talking about this uh, to try and distract these guys. Dropped his pen. I did trying to yell and distract. I heard some bird noises. I heard there's, you know, some whistling, <laughs> some, just a lot of guys were coming up with creative ways to try and distract these kickers. And it seemed to work because Greg Joseph shanked his so far left. It looked like a Blair Walsh 27 yarder. 
So I, I do wonder this one looked this, I swear we, I thought we went back in time and I thought Mike Zimmer was, was telling all these guys to do this. I'm not saying it's not a good idea or whether or not it'll work or not. Um, but it did catch me by surprise to, to hear that and see that, uh, Ben, what did you, what did, Oh, go ahead. Mike. I was going to say, I, it, I'm not surprised that he struggled because when I'm on deadline and our sports editor, Chris Carr, just like hovers over me and yells at me and just screams <laughs> and does like, he doesn't do that. But I'm just, I'm just like, how would you perform if someone was yelling at you while you were trying to write your story? Like that wouldn't be great. Would it? So it makes a certain amount of sense. Is it realistic? Does that happen in a game? I don't know. Does aren't players just trying to block the field goal? We write deadline stories in environments full of screaming fans all the time. So I have, yeah, but they're not screaming at you. They're not screaming at you. Yes. Okay. But they're loud. There's a lot of noise going on. That's true. So I have no sympathy from us. Okay. But is this, is this a realistic thing? I don't know why they're doing this. Well, I don't know if it's realistic. I mean, I, I think we saw, didn't the bears try something like this with like Augusta silence. Wasn't that the, the thing from Matt Nagy? a year or two ago with their kickers of we're going to have it be, you know, like hitting a golf shot at Augusta where the pressure is that it's completely quiet. I mean, so there's all of these little cutesy ways to try to get kickers rattled so that you can practice the idea of them being rattled um, during training camp. I, I mean, I don't know. It's uh, I'm not sure it's going to make a huge difference in terms of a kick during the season, but. It feels like exposure therapy. Like if they're afraid of snakes, yeah. they're like throwing snakes at them. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> that's weird. That. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you'd almost want them to try to, well, there's different theories on this, right? I mean, you could say one theory is learn this in a sterile environment so that you're so uh, confident in the muscle memory of it, that when you do it in a more chaotic environment, you can just go to the same process. The other thought would be um, you need to simulate the chaos and figure out how you're going to, deal with it i think with a a repetitive task like this it would seem like you could probably say just get the basics of it down and and you go from there but um yeah i know there would be others that would would say the chaos is good you you need to practice that because you're going to have that on game day this does come a week after the new special teams coordinator matt daniels was saying we needed to work on greg joe i talked to greg joseph about working on his mental toughness so i do wonder if we're going to see his mental Work on. I wonder if we're going to see a pit of rattlesnakes, maybe some spiders. Um, maybe Greg's going to figure out why Kevin O'Connell's first question to him back in February when he called him up was, "Greg, what are you afraid of? What are your biggest fears?" <laughs> we're going to need to know that <laughs> come June. It's like freaking Batman in here. <laughs> is this a real competition, or is this just you know? Do they do they just like competition at a place Rosal that Ghoul. what? Razel Ghoul with Batman. <laughs> what tell us, Mister Wayne? What do you fear? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes coaches just like competition at positions where they don't have to, where I don't know where there's not as much at stake. Like they're not going to manufacture a quarterback competition, but they can manufacture a kicker competition to make sure nobody feels too comfortable after one. Okay. Season. You need to sacrifice somebody, I suppose. Yeah. He's the tribute. I, I do think it's, I mean, if you believe the special teams coach, they are having real competitions at both of these. And when you see what they're doing beyond what they're saying, it tracks, right? Because we're seeing them switch off the field goal kickers. We're seeing them do all the things that we've seen in the annual competitions under Mike Zimmer for these jobs. Nothing seems to have changed from that. Not even Mike Zimmer 
gather the team around to yell at the kicker. It was just Mike Zimmer privately who was doing that, I would think. So um, this was a new one. And I do think it's a real competition. Who knows how far it's going to go. But I would say from what we've seen from Greg, Greg Joseph in these three open OTAs, I don't know what he's done the other OTAs, but these open ones to reporters, um, I don't think he's done much to quell the competition. Because like I said, he shanked, he shanked that 50-yarder so far left that while the teammates were yelling at him, um, I don't think that really gained anybody's confidence. And this was after the undrafted rookie missed a couple before they even got to that point. I think the undrafted rookie hit the one when everyone was yelling at him, but he had missed two previous ones earlier. So we saw a lot of missed field goals yesterday. Man, that's great. That's great news because if anything the Vikings fans need, it's just uncertainty about the kicker because that's just that just makes life a lot easier going into a season. Uh, it just makes you all warm and tingly. It's like, you know what? If, if you, all this change with the Vikings, at least there's some familiar. That's right? true. I mean, it's a little hard to get that too riled up about this until yes. Kevin O'Connell decides to go for two in a preseason game to send a message to the kicker. Uh, when we get to that point, then come talk to me. Otherwise, this is this is small potatoes. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then Greg Joseph goes on to a Hall of Fame career with another team. <laughs> yes. Until yes. They I'm going to let him know if we're going to go for two if he can't make it. Until they trade a fifth for Kari Vedvik, don't don't talk. Uh, and, and then usher Corey Vedvik off the field so that no one would talk to neither he or Matt Nagy. They, Matt Matt Weil. They ushered Matt Weil. Not Matt Nagy. Matt Weil. <laughs> like, what's Matt Nagy got to do with this? Matt Nagy was not there. That was the previous thing. Weird things people do with special teams. Oh, Matt Weil. All right. Um, let's get to some Twitter questions. Thank you for setting those our way. We've got a few good ones we can get to here. Do you have any about Matt Weil? We do not. We do not. Mm. Okay. Uh, none about Matt Nagy either. Okay. The grumpy Sicilian wants to know, we have 17 potential right guards. I think depth there is okay. But besides, besides, <laughs> Sicilian, I like it. besides quarterback, what position is in serious trouble if an injury or two strikes? Uh, what do you guys think? Tight end. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of depth there, is there? No, not much. Um, so that jumps out at me. I mean, I feel like in NFL, kind of like every position kind of qualifies for that because you don't, you know, especially if, you know, if the roster is largely the same as it's been the last couple of years and they've worked the margins of it. But I think the big problem the last couple of years is how they've constructed this kind of top heavy and bottom heavy and not a lot of kind of guys in the middle. So, when you do have injuries, there's a pretty big drop off. It's not like these guys can't step up and play well. I think you saw that from like, you know, Cam Bynum doesn't make a lot of money. He's a, on a rookie contract. He was a fourth round pick and he was good when Harrison Smith missed the game last year. But usually there's going to be a pretty big drop off at any position when somebody gets hurt because of the way rosters are constructed. The tight end jumped out to me. Yeah, I would go with probably pass rusher or corner. I, I think, I mean, corner, they've, they've addressed it in the draft. I mean, adding Andrew Booth may help there, but there's not a lot of proven talent beyond Patrick Peterson. And you can argue Shannon Sullivan, I suppose. I mean, Cameron Dantzler, I think still has a lot to prove. Um, Chris Boyd, I'd say the same. Andrew Booth needs to get healthy and show that he can play as a rookie. So that one would, I put that on the list and pass rusher. I don't quite know where they get it from. If the guy that played one game last year, one regular season game because of a back injury and the guy that played six because of a pectoral muscle tear, if either of those guys go down, I'm not quite sure who gets to the quarterback on a consistent basis. 
So those would be the two I come up with. Yeah, I would I would say edge rusher as well, even from Ed Donatel's own words. I think he had mentioned when he spoke last week about how for us it starts with those edge players, and then he claimed that they have a nice stable of rushers. And I don't I don't think that's accurate. Even the horses in that stable. I don't, yeah, I just don't see a whole lot of options. I know DJ Wanham played this scheme in college. He's been a three-four outside linebacker. The Vikings moved him around last year under Mike Zimmer. Um, when he started being a little more flexible on their fronts. Um, but is DJ the guy? He hasn't shown anything in terms of being an actual effective pass rusher, whereas he might be maybe an effective drop and cover player. Um, but beyond that, the problem with this new regime taking over and making this change is you don't have years of adding players and developing players. You are stuck with a bunch of drafted 4-3 defensive ends. You've got Patrick Jones, Janarius Robinson, Kenny Willekes, all 4-3 defensive ends, I believe in college and certainly last year under the previous coaching staff. So those guys need to not only develop as players, but then completely change positions and just reading from what former um, players have talked about in terms of making the switch at that position. It requires a lot more thinking. It's not wind up and go like when you're a four, three end and you put your hand down, you have one assignment, you know, your gap, you know what you're doing when you're more of an outside linebacker, you've got a lot more coverage responsibilities, motions, change what you're doing all these different things can make you think more and make you play slower. And so it's great if you've got Zadarius Smith, like they do, who's done this before, he's experienced, he can come in, be effective right away. Daniil has shown that he at least can be somewhat versatile and we have to see how he handles it full time. But yeah, Ben, if, like you said, if one of those guys goes down, which recent history suggests might happen for at least a little bit, uh, where are they going to? And, and that talent drop-off seems so stark. Um, I, I have some big questions about that. And then, I have questions about their starting corners, let alone their backups, right? So I don't know what they do there um, and how that secondary is going to come together at corner. But tight end's a good one as well because uh, if Irv Smith goes down, you basically do not have a receiving option right there, at least one that has proven himself in the NFL. From a Uh, matchup perspective, that first game is going to be really fascinating because you have a Packers team that has a completely different set of receivers many of which may not have Aaron Rodgers trust yet, but he's playing against a defense that has a couple of his former teammates, Janet Sullivan, Zedaria Smith, also a scheme that's given him a lot of trouble. And the Vikings are going to have to figure out how they're going to execute it in week one against the two-time defending NFL MVP. So a lot, a lot of uh, subplots to that one with these two teams that see each other all the time, except they look completely different than they have in the past. I got a nice, uh, this is an interesting kind of thought experiment question from Evan via DM. He wants to know what is the one move you, another team made that you wish the Vikings would have seen make. So basically um, he throws out there like the Browns trading for Amari Cooper, not Deshaun Watson. Um, he throws out there. That one is an interesting one. Um, is, was there a trade or a move um, that would have made sense for the Vikings to have made, whether it's, mm. We've talked about moving on from Kirk Cousins at nauseum. Um, but I, I, I think potentially adding a bona fide wide receiver, I know they added Albert Wilson, but that one does stick out to me. Like he brings the Amari Cooper thing up. Financially, they never would have been able to make that work. But they hold on to Adam Thielen. And if you had another big option there, perhaps you're not talking about, you know, that kind of competition or having to bring in an Albert Wilson or something like that. Uh, what do you guys yeah. think? Yeah, I think the wide receiver one sticks out for me because like around the draft time, there's a lot of 
chatter about, you know, are they going to add, you know, would they go big at that position and maybe use a, a high pick there? And they certainly had opportunities. They traded picks to division rivals that turned into wide receivers in a couple different cases with um, both the Lions and the Packers. And, you know, it's every all of that will be hindsight when we see how those players perform. But I did think that there was an opportunity to, with as, with as much top 75 talent as they amassed in the draft that they could have used a high pick on someone who could potentially be a difference maker at wide receiver. Cause I, you know, you got not just plan for right now, but for the eventual, you know, Hey, Adam Thielen's not going to be here forever, stuff like that. And I thought that that could have really helped them this year, as opposed to just, you know, other moves they made. I think a lot of Vikings fans have heard from anyway, uh, have wanted to see them maybe make a bigger splash on the interior O-line. I know we get a lot of questions about JC Treader, but in terms of guard, you know, I, I think what they did was they went the real budget route, right? They're just throwing a bunch of bodies in there, bringing in veterans at low contracts and trying to see how that pans out. Um, but a lot of people maybe wanted Austin Corbett, who ended up signing, I think, like for almost what, five, six, seven, if not more, million per year. Um, in Carolina, I believe the former Rams starting guard, who was, I think, their right guard over there. There weren't just a ton of options, though. And, and I don't necessarily think they should have gone that route because I think a lot of those O-line contracts get um, kind of over – people kind of overspend on them, uh, it would seem. We've seen the Vikings do that with yeah. Riley Reef, Mike Remmers, yeah, Alex Boone, some of those over the years. Um, I mean, at corner would have been the one I would have said, but I don't know that there was a great example of that this offseason of a team just making a big, splashy move for a corner. And that that's another spot that's really expensive. So – those guys don't get to the market very often. And when you do it, it can be a contract you regret. So um, yeah, that's, that's more of a hypothetical one, but that, that is the position I think still is begging for a long-term investment. And maybe it'll come in the form of Andrew Booth being the guy that they're hoping he is, but I could see doing something along those lines. And I, I realize I'm hypothesizing more than something we saw somebody do, but that's uh, that's probably the one that sticks out the most to me. Andrew, that conversation brings me to a uh, DM I got from Danny that I didn't get to last week. Danny Carlson. Do we really think Garrett Bradbury is the starting center week one? I've heard O'Connell and Quasi say there's th- some things they think they can fix. How do you fix a center who gets forklifted by bigger, stronger nose tackles? I don't know is my answer to that. <laughs> what, I mean, they, they think there's some things they can do schematically. I don't know what those things are, though. Yeah, other than just have Kirk run away oh, from no. the, <laughs> have Kirk run away from the center of the pocket every every <laughs> single snap. Um, the silence you hear is Access Vikings. That's, that's, our, that's our... We don't know either, right? <laughs> I mean, the only thing you can try to do is give them more help, but then you have to have other people be able to win one-on-one win one-on-one matchups and do their job so i do think when you look at the list of guards that they've started even just alongside garrett in the past few years um the help part of this has been brought up is yeah. it's not not been great for him no it hasn't so you do wonder if you get another year of ezra cleveland kind of growing into the spot maybe if it's Chris Reed or Jesse Davis, one of these veterans who can at least hold up a little bit and not get bullied back there, maybe you are assigning more double teams up front for him uh, that Garrett can be a part of because he's got some talent, obviously, when it comes to the run blocking thing, reach blocks, using that mobility. 
but pass protection is what everybody sees the, the low lights that get shared of him getting flopped onto the ground um, and, and just driven backward by larger defensive tackles. So with that, I would have to assume it has to be help because you can't roll Kirk out every, every snap. We've seen that offense before in Minnesota. We've seen the play action, the boots, as Mike Zimmer liked to say, we've seen all that so often uh, in Minnesota that it wasn't any kind of solution. Cause at some point, I guess the only other thing maybe I could throw out there is get in less or fewer third and longs, because that was the thing that happened so frequently under the old Kubiak Mike Zimmer system was, Hey, we're going to run it on second and 10. And I don't care if it's third and seven or third and 11, we're just going to try and gain some yardage here. I do think this offensive play calling is going to be more progressive and maybe putting them in situations. And, and O'Connell brought that up quite a bit this off season and saying, if we can get Kirk in better situations, third and mediums, that can help quite a bit in terms of how that opens up the playbook and prevents, and you know, I'm reading between the lines here, but maybe prevents a Garrett Bradbury from getting put um, kind of into that bulldozer's path, I guess. I don't know. Do we think we're going to see Kirk in the shotgun anymore than we have the last couple of years? I mean, I, I think there'll still be a fair amount of under center. It's been what he's liked. It's been what he said he liked. It's been part of this offense, but that is one thought is if you put him in the shotgun a little bit more, it may buy him another second to read while he's not dealing with Garrett Bradbury getting uh, forklifted as Danny so eloquently put it. I, yeah, that's interesting because I, I we have Kirk heard Kirk talk often about his preference for that. We've seen it go poorly when they just do only shotgun like in 2018. Yeah. Um, but we've also seen him play very well in certain games. I remember one of their wins at Chicago, it might've been two years ago under Gary Kubiak. They almost went not exclusively shotgun, but pretty heavy shotgun against a really strong defensive front. And it was just so he could have that extra time to get the ball out quickly and all that stuff. And it was a very good, uh, ended up being a very good game plan that worked for him. I think Stafford and the Rams did quite a bit of shotgun, but I think that's what Stafford preferred, right? Yeah. Still a lot of that in Detroit. I mean, when you spend 10 years trying to (laughs) come back from late deficits with the Lions, you're going to be in a lot of shotgun. So maybe they just adjusted to what Kirk prefers and certainly situations are going to call for different alignments and all that. But if I, I would guess if Kirk prefers that based on what he's seeing in the protections, maybe that's something they adjust to. I also um, thought, uh, I thought 2018 was going just fine until uh, Zimmer told him to stop. Yeah, they were four, two and one. And then Zimmer got mad about them not running the ball enough. And then it kind of got ground to a halt from there. Schedule got a little tougher too, but it did. It did. It's not all. It's not all. You know, this or that. But I actually thought the offense was. <laughs> I liked the offense in 2018 before Mike Zimmer said I don't like the offense, and then they yeah. started losing games 21 to seven and 24 10 and 24 10. Getting shut out in Seattle. Yes, that's just me though. Yeah, I I kind of agree with you. I mean, I, I, Cousins talked about preferring all of the things that they made changes to, but it also was the palatable thing to say. I mean, John Filippo became um, persona non grata pretty quickly around here. And, and certainly I, I don't think he was the, the perfect solution for the problem, but there was a lot that year that got put on John Filippo that, like you said, was a result of other things being uh, dictated to him that I think the whole thing went sour in part because of that. 
in sticking with our wide receiver theme for much of this podcast, uh, we can end it with this one. Skolaholics wants to know how many wide receivers do you see making the 53? And after Jefferson, Thielen, and Osborne, who are they? Um, wow, at this point, I would the Rams always kept six, right? And it's because they often went three wide. That was the predominant, I mean, among yep. the highest rates in the league, they went three wide. So that makes sense. But I don't know. Do they necessarily keep six on this roster? Because of the way, if you've got four, at least four in the backfield between Cook, Madison, Wangwu, and Ham, and you've got, what, three tight ends? Could you see even more than three tight ends making this roster? Um, I mean, that'd be the the spot, right, where you would would switch it. I mean, if you had fewer tight ends. But, I mean, even even if it's – three then you're i mean the other question always becomes do you keep three quarterbacks and i i think probably yes i mean the, the practice squad stuff makes it a little a little easier but you assume that both Mannion and mond are probably here behind cousins so you're already sitting there saying uh we need probably eight or nine linemen um so it's a nine three quarterbacks four running backs that already puts you at 16 uh, say to keep three tight ends, that's already 19. Um, uh, you could keep six, but it won't probably be more than six. I mean, and even six would put you at 25 and you, you know, then you have 25 spots on defense and three specialists and that's it. So what, what if you want four specialists, so you can keep two kickers through the whole year to keep yelling <laughs> at them both. That could make it a little more difficult. I mean, it, there's, you know, the practice squad thing probably makes it a little easier. I mean, you can yell at them even if they're on the practice. That's squad. true. That's true. Yeah. Um, Maybe yeah, different... there, you yeah. know, there is that thought. I, yeah, that, that would make sense. I guess it does come down to, they just don't have enough tight ends to, maybe kick out one of these wide receivers, even if they're not going to use them a ton. So it would come down probably to special teams. And at this point, if I had to guess six wide receivers, it would be those three with Osborne, I guess, Albert Wilson, Amir Smith-Marset, and either Jalen Naylor or Dan or Dan Chisena, another track guy. So only, only one of the track guys makes it. Oh man. That I mean, it, we've seen though the veteran wide receiver Kendall Wrights. That's seen, true. That's true. We have seen so many of these veteran wide receivers come in and just not pan out. So, this, I'm, so there's still hope for both my track guys. So Al Al Wilson might not be uh, in yeah. the long run. You never know. I prefer Dan Chisena because he's a mid distance guy. So <laughs> I mean, Naylor's more of the kind of the pure sprinter, which probably translates better to football. But I don't really care about that. I want I want more of the mid distance guys to be on the roster. So. Did, did the love affair and infatuation with Chad Beebe end with the previous regime? I, yeah, he's not even on the roster. I know he's not on the roster. I just uh, yeah. making sure there's not. He's. I mean, we love the Beebs, but is he? He's not coming back, is he? The Beebs couldn't stay healthy. Yeah, I don't think, no. I don't think the Beebs is walking through that door. No, no. limping through it, maybe. Maybe. The Beebs um, at the bar, I think, are probably both um, gone. I was trying to come up with the B word, not banned, because they're not banned, but no. you know, <laughs> they're still like technically allowed back if they right, yeah. <laughs> but no, I don't think that either of those either of those two are coming back. Probably not. Probably not. But we'll have a, a lot more to dissect as the Vikings close their offseason program next week with their mandatory mini camps. We'll be back to put a bow on the offseason with you guys as well. Please check out all of our work at startribune.com.